0: So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs, and he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants." And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion, and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate." But he, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found." This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, my name is Steve Treichler. I'm pastor of uh, Hope Community Church in Minneapolis. I was uh, one of the founding, ch- uh, I guess I'm still a church planter 26 years later. <laughs> I don't know, but uh, I was the, the founding pastor of that church. And uh, it's through that experience, uh, we became part of the Church Planting Network, Acts 29, quite a few years later. And that is how I got to know Tim and his family and, and this church as well. And, and uh, for better or worse, I was Tim's coach the first year of the, the church planting. So all the mistakes you guys made the first year, of those were my fault. And so you can just send me the bill for whatever you did that was wrong <laughs> that first year. So it's, it's, my, it's, my, uh, it's my privilege to, to be here uh, this morning. I thought I'd just quickly show a picture of my family. That is my clan this Thanksgiving, um, including our dogs. So the dogs got in there, Dakota the Wonder Beagle right there behind me. Um, those are my three boys, and two of them are married, and one of them uh, has made me two grandbabies, and so I don't know if there are any grandparents in the room, but I'm telling you what, uh, I now call my children my practice grandchildren because it is the best thing ever to have little grandchildren, so um, uh, we are in, you're in a series in, in Advent, like a lot of churches are, makes sense, and working your way right around the the, the the wreath, the Christmas wreath, with the different aspects, and so this week uh, we're going to speak about the issue of love. What happened uh, when Christ came was a tremendous amount of love. And there's a, there's a passage that I think is very telling of how this love affects us. And it says, we love because he first loved us. In other words, our capacity to love others is, is necessitated on how much we get it that God actually loved us. And so my whole point this morning is, I just want to let you see how much God loves you. That's what I, I want you to see, uh, is kind of where we're aimed. And I love this definition. It uh, comes from Suzanne Calhoun um, out of this uh, Lexam survey of theology. I just came across it, but I love this. God's love is the divine attribute that indicates God's disposition to be self-giving and for the good of the other. It's just a great definition of what this kind of love is. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. A lot of us post things on social media, especially if you're a parent. You always post things. These are my three boys when they were young. This definitely, this was before social media was a thing. But this is what we would have posted about our three lovely boys, right? Three children, they're just perfect. This just looks like the absolute, you know, That moment lasted 1.6 seconds. The the photographer got it. The reality of what my home looked like, a little more like the movie Step Brothers, if you've ever seen that. (laughs) That really was what, what happened. There was just all this sibling stuff going on. I don't even know what that is because I grew up as an only child. So I now have three boys, and they're just all the time, all the time, beating on each other. In fact, one Christmas, what we got them was a used mattress that they put in the basement so they could have cage matches down there. I mean, that was what they wanted, and that's what we gave them. And so what we want to look at is a little bit of what's going on with this sibling stuff and how it coincides with with God's love for us. So, uh, Audrey, is that right? Audrey, where'd you go? You were somewhere. There you are. Uh, you, you read Luke, 11 to 30, uh, Luke 15, 11 to 32. I ba- Thank you. That was really good. Uh, I, I want to back up just a little bit to give you the context of what's happening here. It's really important you see that so it makes sense here. So if you look at, if you've if you got a boy with you, you can, everything's going to be on the screens too. You can look at it uh, either way. Uh, Luke 15, it starts out in the beginning of this chapter by saying this. It says, now the tax collectors and sinners... We're all gathering around to hear Jesus. So these undesirable people were around Jesus. And the Pharisees, the religious rulers of the day, and the teachers of the law, they muttered. Great word, muttered, isn't it? It's muttered, muttered, you know? They muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Okay, that's, that's the context of all of what's about to happen in, in Luke chapter 15. And you may be very familiar with this, or if you're brand new to the Bible, you'll pick it up real quick. So then it says, then Jesus told them this parable, all right? He's going to give them a parable. Now, if you do something and Jesus starts telling you a story, by definition, you're the bad guy in the story. That's just what's going to happen, and that's exactly what's going to happen here, okay? So he sets them up, and he tells this, this, he says, he's telling them this parable, and it's a parable. But it's got three parts to it. The first part is, what if a person has 100 sheep, loses one of them, doesn't, it, doesn't they leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep and, until they find it, right? Now, that's kind of a bad business decision, right? Because you got 99 good ones and you got one lost, but you're so passionate about that one you do. And then when he finds it, you joyfully put it on his shoulders and goes home and then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. And then Jesus gives the point. I tell you, there is more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not, do not need to repent. So just picture what's going on here, kind of smell the air. Here are these Pharisees standing, these, these, these sinners are around them, and, and they're hearing this story. This is what Jesus is saying. And the, 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 the Pharisees are thinking, yes, we're the righteous that don't need to repent, right? Jesus is setting him up. Or, he's continuing with the parable, but it changes scenes. Or, suppose a woman has ten silver... Whoops, oh, we got to, went too far. Suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. So, just think about this too. So, this, this, this woman loses a coin... And she's crazy to find it. You know what it is? Uh, It's like losing your keys. You know, just, uh, where are my keys, right? You can't find it. And then she finds it, and there's a sense of, ah, everything's right. But it's not an economic decision because she has this party, invites everybody over, and spends more than the coin on on the party. She's just happy that she's found something. In the same way, she's rejoiced me, I found my last coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents, so again, they're sitting there. Jesus is master storyteller, all right? Because they're sitting there and they're going, okay, all right, they're the sinners and we're the, we're the good guys in the story. Jesus is going to turn the tables. And here we go. This is a, this is a parable. It's, it's often called the prodigal son story. I'll show you why that's actually kind of a, maybe not the best title for it. Um, it's really the father and a father and two sons. It, but he... He's, uh, he's going to share this story, and it's really in four big acts, okay? So we're going to walk through all four acts. Here we go. Act one, I wish you were dead. Jesus, it conti- says, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. There's a lot going on in that one little paragraph here. Uh, the first thing is, Jesus is continuing, this is one parable with three parts to it, and the fourth part has four scenes. Okay, so it's, but he's got one point, one big point. He's continuing on. And he, he, what, he, what you're going to see here is this simple little chart here i put together. Uh, actually, it comes from Kenneth Bailey's book, and I'll talk a little more about that book here in just a minute. But you, you kind of see what, what the lost sheep and the lost coin and the lost son they all represent things. And you don't have to be a genius to kind of figure this out. He's telling a story. And he's giving you a point. And here's, the, here's what they're going to all reconcile these things, right? You've got the shepherd and the lost sheep and the 99. They represent, uh, excuse me, you've got the shepherd, the woman, the father. They represent God, Jesus. The, the, ir, the irreligious are the lost sheep, the lost coin, the younger brother. And the, the, the Pharisees are the 99, the nine. But this time they're going to be the older son. So let's meet these people. First, the younger brother, Okay. There was a man, he had two sons. The younger one said to the father, Father, give me my share of the estate. (laughs) Now, you might be thinking, there must be something culturally going on there because you don't normally get the estate until someone dies. There's nothing going on culturally there. It's the exact same as if someone came, your kid came to you now and says, I really wish you'd just hurry up and die because I need your stuff. It's just as offensive. Right? And it's totally a younger brother move. I apologize if you're the youngest person in the room. You know, youngest in your family. You grew up that way? But it's totally. My youngest got away with everything. You know? We, in fact, we even called him. I called him King Calvin. His name's Calvin. I called him King Calvin. Calvin gets what he wants. And the older two are like, what? And I'm like, yeah, come on. He's, he's, just, you know, he's the youngest. He gets what he wants. It's unbelievably offensive what he asks. Second thing, there's a father in this story. The father, uh, he does it. Now, here's here's one of the things going on in this, is Jesus is telling a story. These people don't exist, all right? They never existed, just in the mind of Jesus. Why did the father give them? uh, We don't know. We have no idea. He just did it, though. He's explaining that he goes ahead and he honors it. But then you have one more person in the story, another character, and that's the older brother. Certain man had two sons. So it's not just a story about one of the sons. It's actually a story about two sons. So the second son is very important in the story. Okay, now, act two. Act two. How's that working out for you, right? It says, not long after that, after he could go through all the, uh, you know, getting all the taxes straight and all that kind of thing that he has to do when a stake gets settled, he, he gathers everything he has, and he sets off for a, a distant country, And he squanders his money on wild living. He's just, whatever his eyes want to do, par tay, I'm going to do it, right? And he goes over and he squanders all this money. So he's having a great time. Until, after he had spent everything, it goes on to say, there was a severe famine in that whole country and he began to be in need. So he went out and hired himself out to a, a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields and feed pigs, to feed pigs, and he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that he, the pigs were eating, and, but no one gave him anything. Uh, Alcoholics Anonymous has a great phrase. They have a lot of great phrases, but one of my very favorite ones is oftentimes if people get a, get a DUI and they're forced to go to Alcoholics Anonymous for a certain number of meetings, they'll get a sponsor in their whole thing. And then, like on the day that they fulfill their court requirement, they tell their sponsor, I'm done now, I'm good, I've got this figured out, and uh, thanks for your help, but I'm I'm, I'm good enough. And usually it's an old seasoned guy who's the sponsor, and he just says something like this, he says, I just want to let you know that on your own, your best thinking got you here. (laughs) Right? That's a great AA line, There's there's a lot of good ones. And that's what's going on with this guy. Your best thinking got you here, kid. This is what happened. And it says that he spends everything, there's a famine, he's got nothing to eat, he works for a, a pig farmer. Now, that's an honorable job here in Iowa, all right? That's a very honorable job. I was told number one in the nation in pork, and my, 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 my passion for bacon thanks you for all of that. Uh, but in this particular culture, to a Jewish person, pigs are forbidden, and they were not to be around pigs. So this says how low he has gotten because it's something to a Jewish person was unclean for him to do. And he's working, cleaning stalls for pigs. And he says to himself then, it says, when he came to his senses, he's like, what am I doing here? He says, "Uh, how many of my father's hired servants, my dad's hired people, they got food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against you, sins against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So the interesting thing here is a lot of people look at this story, and they look at the son, often called the prodigal son. And again, I'll kind of say why, that, why they're called the prodigal son. It's perhaps not why you think it is. But the, 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 this younger brother, uh, it says he came to his senses, and he, and he, and he, but the, the, the motivation is not, oh my gosh, what did I do to my dad? That's not his motivation. His motivation is, I'm hungry. His motivation is economic security. And and, you know, if you're really feeling bad about something, I don't rehearse the speech before I come and tell you how bad I feel about it. He's rehearsing this speech. Here's the speech I'll give. I'll say this. I have, I'm acknowledging this. I'm no longer worthy of you. But give me a job. Do you see that part? Make me like one of your hired servants. I need a job, Dad. I need to eat. Right. So, there, this is not noble repentance. I think a lot of people look at this and go, "Oh, he was just broken over a sin." No, he's not. He's hungry. He just wants to eat. So this is not noble. But he does come home, and it says, "So he got up and went to his father." So he goes, and he's going to go home now. Uh, I, I told you I was going to mention this book. I, if you like this parable, and I think this is one of the most important parables in Scripture that Jesus, uh, that Jesus utters in Luke chapter 15, this book is for you. Uh, this book is called The Cross and the Prodigal. It's by a man by the name of Kenneth Bailey. Kenneth Bailey grew up uh, as a missionary kid in the Middle East. And what he does for a variety of parables, but this book is just about this particular parable is he offers insights into uh, some of the cultural things that will go on in the Middle East culture that you might miss as a result of just reading. It. You're going to get most of the big things, but they come more alive when you see some of the cultural impacts. And he says this one. He says, First century Jewish custom dictated that if a Jewish boy lost the family inheritance among the Gentiles and dared to return home, The community would break a large pot in front of him and cry out, so-and-so, fill in his name, younger brother, is cut off from his people, okay? This ceremony was called the kezazah, the literal, the cutting off. So you're shunned from the community. After it was performed, the community would have nothing to do with the wayward person. By selling his inheritance and taking it with him, the prodigal, takes a huge risk. If he loses that money among the Gentiles, he burns his bridges and has no way to return home. He has no more rights to claim, and no one will take him in. And the younger brother knows this, and Jesus' listeners know this. So they know that if he blows this money and he comes back, there's nothing waiting for him. In fact, there's community shunning. That's what they did. They break this pot, they yell this thing out, and it's the Kezazah ceremony. So he's not, not getting anything. All right? That's act two. Act three. Act three. The prodigal God. we'll see why that's probably a better way to to name this thing. Um, Yeah. So the word word prodigal, actually. The word prodigal is, if you look that word up, and uh, it's kind of like, remember Princess Bride? Remember that movie, The Princess Bride? You keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means, right? Um, The... uh, (laughs) The, the, the this, this part of, the, of the, uh, para, the, the, the thing, prodigal actually means, if you look up the definition, it means lavish or a profuse, characterized by a profuse or wasteful expenditure. Recklessness is spendthrift, luxuriant. That's why the prodigal son is named the prodigal son, Not because we say, oh, he's being a prodigal, which in our mind means they wander off and they do all kinds of wild things. Prodigal actually means it's when he went out and spent the money. And it should actually be called the prodigal God because God is the one who is exceedingly luxurious and and that's the way he treats. He's lavish in how he treats the boy. So, first of all, we'll see the father's compassion here, okay? It says... But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. Now, you have to go a little bit in the mind of what's happening here. Okay? So here's the son who asks his dad, Hey, Dad, can I have, can I have uh, my share of the inheritance now? He gives it to him. And you could expect that father to be really angry, right? And instead... The passage says the son goes off. So he's gone for a while. It's not just hours. It's days, months. And it says, says, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. So what does that mean? That means the kid is just a dot in the distance coming home, right? And that means that the father has been looking for the son. He went that way. He'll come back from that way. And he sees this dot in the distance, and he goes, that looks like my boy's gate. That looks like his walk. That's my boy. Now, that's amazing, the compassion there that the father has for this son. And then it's, it talks about the father's justice. He ran to him. We, we're going to miss the, the why that's justice. I'll come back to that in just a moment, but that is God's justice. Right at that moment the second the third thing here's to notice is the joy. He threw his arms around him and he kissed him. Okay? He squeezes the stuffing out of him. All right? Now I'm gonna let Kenneth Bailey impact a little bit here what's actually happening so we see it better. He says, as soon as they discovered that the money had been lost among the Gentiles. Okay, so this is as the boy's coming home, he comes to the edge of the community, and what would have happened? Well, this Kezazah ceremony would have been enacted. The son would be obliged to sit for some time outside the gate of the family home before being allowed to even see his father. Finally, he would be summoned. When the boy already, with the boy already rejected by the village, the father would be very angry, and the boy would be obliged to apologize for everything as he pleaded for job training in the next village over. That's what he should expect. But this is not what happens. No one in the village thinks or acts as a separate person, but as a part of the tightly knit village society. The individual, the individual solidarity with that community is unshakable. The father, however, reacts in a very countercultural manner. He breaks all the rules of Oriental patriarchy as he runs down the road to reconcile his son to himself. And the word run in the Greek, Draman, is a technical term used for foot races in the stadium. Sprints. Okay? Luke is a well-educated man. The author of this. He's a well-educated man, and he chooses his words very carefully. Thus we can translate the phrase, His father saw him and had compassion and raced. It is not just a slow shuffle or a fast walk. He races. He sprints. In the Middle East, a man of his age and position always walks in a slow, dignified fashion. It is safe to assume that he has not run anywhere for any purpose For 40 years. No villager over the age of 25 ever runs. But now the father races down the road. To do so, he must take the front edges of his robe in his hands like a teenager. And then you see old man legs. I I didn't wear shorts to minister to you today. Because that would just be old man legs, right? He He shows his old man legs. And it says, when he does this, his legs show in what is considered a humiliating posture. All of this is painfully shameful for him. For the father. The loiterers in the street will be distracted from tormenting the prodigal and will instead run after the father, amazed at seeing this respected village elder shaming himself publicly. It is his compassion that leads the father to race out to his son. He knows what his father will what his son will face in the village. He takes upon himself the shame and humiliation that the son should have gotten. So it's the justice of God that he takes that and the son doesn't get it. Okay, keep moving on in our story here. The son now gives his speech and he says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Now if you notice, that's all the, we saw the rehearsal speech. I could show you the two side by side. He gets it cut short. There's no thing about, give me a job or anything like that, right? Father doesn't even let him finish because the father just says, but the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring, bring the fatted calf and kill it. We are going to have ribeye tonight, right? And let's have a feast and celebrate, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He is lost and is found, so they began to celebrate, there's this party happening because the son comes home, right? The prodigal comes home, and he's, he's welcomed home. Now, if you're sitting there, and you're, you know, you're among this group uh, that is listening to Jesus, and you're the Pharisees are going, okay, well, third parable, you made your point the first two. What's the deal here? Jesus ain't done. The story's not over yet. There's a bonus part. There's a bonus part to this part of the parable. And he goes on. It says meanwhile <laughs> sounds like it meanwhile back at the ranch right meanwhile the older son was in the field he's working he's being a diligent son he's being a good son he's working right when he came near the house he heard music and dancing right he's walking up to the house and he kind of what is that noise <laughs> People are dancing and swaying on the chandeliers. And it's like, what is happening in this house? So he calls one of the servants and says, what is going on? And they say, your brother has come. And your father has killed the fatted calf because he has him back safe and sound. And now we're getting right to the heart of the Pharisees, right? How do you feel about that? And the older brother became angry, Right? He's livid. What? And he refuses to go in and party. So it's, uh, he refuses to go in, but then the, son does, or the father does something amazing. The father goes out, and he pleads with the, with the older brother. See that? Now listen to Kenneth Bailey here. He says, everyone in the banquet hall, when this happens now, you would tense expectantly awaiting the father's reaction. They assume the older son will be punished immediately or ignored until the guests are gone and then dealt with harshly. For the second time in the same day, the father's response is incredible. Once again, he demonstrates a willingness to endure shame and self-emptying love in order to reconcile the parable briefly and succinctly states his father came out and entreated him. It is, al- it is almost impossible to convey the shock that it must have reverberated through the banquet hall when the father deliberately left his guests, humiliated himself before everyone, and went out in the courtyard to try to reconcile his older son. It Comes up for the older son. But when he gets there, The son, uh, he says this to him. He says, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, doesn't say brother, right? When this son of yours comes home, Who has squandered your property with prostitutes? uh, You kill the fatted calf for him. What is this saying? This is the this he's getting in the mind of the Pharisees, right? And he's saying, "You're this, you're the older brother, and uh, you're saying this isn't fair. I got this coming, and I get nothing. That guy squanders everything, treats you with disrespect, makes you a shame in the community, and when he comes home, he gets the fatted calf." you're unjust. That is wrong. That's what the older brother's saying. And the father says this, my son, you're always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to be celebrating, and be glad because this brother of yours was, and he uses the word brother there, right? <laughs> wasn't just son of mine, it's brother of yours, was dead and is alive again he was lost, and he's found. And Jesus takes the parable, drops the mic, and that's the end of the parable. Leaving there to realize, oh, he's talking to us. He's talking. We often use this parable, to and rightfully so, for people who maybe have gone off and have 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 you know, had wild living or something in their past. It's very very. Uh, it seems very big. Something like that. We we give it this parable as a way to come home. And it is that. And if that's you this morning, this parable is an invitation to come home. That the Father is looking for you like a dot in the distance for you to come home. It is that. It is that. But it's more than that. It's actually written to religious people. Right? It's written uh, to folks who've been around a while. Now, the question you got to ask yourself is, what, what made the Pharisees think that they were better than the tax collectors, right? Jesus hangs around with sinners, not like good, like good people like us, good upstanding citizens, right? What made them think that? And it was just simply this, their religion. They thought they were better. And Jesus wants to let them know, you're lost, and you need to be found as well. Now, a good indication of this is uh, if, I'll, I'll get there in just a minute. Uh, Tim Keller in, in, in No Good Sermon is a good, oops, No Good Sermon is a sermon without Tim Keller. Wow, I got ahead of myself here a little bit. Um, he's got a book written, The Gospel in Life. And in that book, he does a great job of showing the difference between what religion is. And I'm using that word in a certain way. By religion, I don't mean being a follower of Christ and, 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 and caring for him and spending time with him and going to church. I just mean that it's a system of rules and things that if I follow, I'm now okay with God. And if I do those things, I'm okay. And if I don't, I'm not okay. And therefore, it's just like any other religion in the world. Then Christianity just becomes like just a, a things you just appease the God and then the God will now treat you well. It becomes legalism. It becomes something that actually chokes the very life out of you. Religion will kill you. If you're brand new, you're like, "Wait a minute, what am I doing at church then? I get that, but there's a big difference between religious living living in the sense where I'm doing these things in order to become OK, and I'm already OK in Jesus. So he's going to list these things. I want to list a few of them from his book, and he's got a chart, and I love this thing. He says this. He says, "Religion says this: I obey, therefore I'm accepted. If I obey God, there, then I'm going to get accepted." My motivation is based on fear and insecurity. I obey God in order to get things from God. When circumstances in my life go wrong, I'm angry at God or myself since I believe, like Job's friends, that anyone who is good deserves a comfortable life. When I'm criticized, I'm furious or devastated because it is critical that I think of myself as a good person. Threats to that self-image must be destroyed at all costs. My self-view swings between two poles. If and when I'm living up to whatever my standards are, I feel good. I feel confident. But then I'm prone to be proud and unsympathetic to failing people. If and when I'm not living up to my standards, I feel insecure and inadequate. I'm not confident. I feel like a failure. My identity and self-worth are based mainly on how hard I work. Or how moral I am. So I, must look down on, uh, so I must look down on those I perceive as lazy or immoral. I disdain and feel superior to the other. So in kind of my definition of what I'm saying, religion is, if you look down on any person in the planet, you got this. I'm not saying that means we agree with everything, and we, but I, I am saying if you somehow think you're morally superior, you have a moral high ground. I have the moral high ground here. Really? Yeah, I got a Bible. I got a book for you to read. It's called the Bible, right? Uh, th- th- no, no, there is no moral high ground in the gospel. It's level ground. And then, uh, lastly, here he says, "Since I look to my own pedigree or performance for my spiritual acceptability, my heart manufactures idols. It may be my talents, my moral record, my personal discipline, my social status, etc. I absolutely have to have them, so they serve as my main hope, meaning happiness, security, and significance." Whatever I may say, I believe about God. That's religion. That is not the gospel. The gospel says something very, very radically different. The gospel says simply this. I'm already accepted. I'm already accepted. Therefore, I obey. There's a world of difference between those two. A world of difference. That the Father already accepts you in Jesus Christ. And therefore, I you I mean I don't have to do this? No, you don't have to. You get to. Really? Really. It's a complete. The gospel changes everything when you understand, oh my gosh, I don't need to do all this stuff to please God? He's already pleased in me because of what Christ did? Right? That's just mind-blowing. The simplest four words that have changed my life uh, on this are just, I'm okay in Jesus. No matter what, I'm okay in Jesus. And therefore, I want to do these things. My motivation is based on grateful joy. It's not based on fear and insecurity. I obey God to get to to God. I want to know God. I want to delight and resemble Him. When circumstances in my life go wrong, I struggle. But I know all my punishment fell on Jesus. He's not punishing me. He might be disciplining me, but there's a big difference, right? Between someone... Wanting your best and punishing you and trying to pour out wrath on you. And that while he may allow this for my training, he will exercise his fatherly love within my trial. When I'm criticized, I struggle. But it is not critical for me to think of myself as a good person. I've been, for the last five years, I've been trying to read scripture. And I've been always trying to read it from the perspective that I'm like the bad guy in the story. It's actually a very fascinating way to read the Bible. Because <laughs> you always put yourself in the, oh, I'm David, not Goliath. No, I'm kind of Goliath. You know, I'm kind of arrogant and I'm, yeah, oh, wow, wow, okay, God, that teaches me something, right? Maybe I'm not the good guy in the story. My identity is not built on my record or my performance, but on God's love for me in Christ. It's a done deal. I can take criticism. My self-view is not based on a view of myself as a moral achiever. In Christ I am, and then he quotes this Latin phrase, which means simultaneously sinful and yet accepted in Christ. I am so bad he had to die for me, and I'm so loved he was glad to die for me. Come on. Come on. I know this in middle of Iowa, but you've got to give me an amen on that one. Come on. Amen. There you go. This leads... <laughs> I say the same thing in Minneapolis. Uh, This leads me to deeper and deeper humility and confidence at the same time. Neither swaggering nor sniveling. Great phrase. My identity and self-worth are centered on the one who died for his enemies, who is excluded from the city for me. He took my shame, so I don't have to have it. I am saved by sheer grace, so I can't look down on those who believe or practice something different from me. Only by grace I am what I am. I have no inner need to win arguments. And then lastly, I have many good things in my life, family, work, spiritual disciplines, etc., but none of these good things are ultimate things to me. None of them things I absolutely have to have. So there's a limit to how much anxiety, bitterness, and despondency they can inflict on me when they are threatened or lost. And this is, the, this is the word to the older brothers. This is the word to the, to the Pharisees that you are placing all of your security not in God. You think you are, but you're not. You're, it's in how good you are. Oh, okay. Hmm, that's interesting. No, you're just like the younger brother, even though you never left. I'll quote from the great theologian Bono here to close this up. He says, you see, at the center of all religions is the idea of karma. You know what you put out comes back to you, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, or in physics, in, in physical laws, every action is met by an equal or an opposite one. It's clear to me that karma is at the very heart of the universe. You do bad, you get bad, you do good, you get good. Then he says, and yet, along comes this idea called grace, to upend all that as you reap you will sow stuff. Grace defies reason and logic. Love interrupts, if you like, the consequences of your actions, which in my case is very good news indeed because I've done a lot of stupid stuff. I'd be in trouble, I'd be in big trouble if karma was going to be my final judge. I'd be in deep stuff. I'll just edit that. Uh, I, I didn't ex- I do- it doesn't excuse my, uh, my mistakes, but I'm holding out for grace. I'm holding out that Jesus took my sins on the cross because I know who I am. And I hope I don't. I, and I hope I don't have to attend my own religiosity. That's the love of God for you this morning. That's the love of God for you. We're going to close by taking communion, and I want to do it just a little bit differently. And not not that you know the same basic principles here, but this I want you to think of it this. I want you to. Everybody comes down the center aisle. Is that right? Uh, communion is an opportunity for you to respond. It's an opportunity for you to remember. And the, 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 the bread represents the body of Jesus, which was broken for you. And the cup, uh, which there's wine or grape juice, whichever your preference is, they represent the blood of Jesus for you. And, uh, and, and so this is an opportunity to remember what Christ has done for you and how you are forgiven in him. But here's what I want you to do. Uh, during, are you gonna be singing or just kind of playing some music? or how does it work? Okay, so during this, during this next time right here, as you file this way, I actually want you to think of walking home. And the Father who sees you as a dot in the distance comes running out at you. Now, for some of you, that might be for the very first time. For the very first time, you say yes to Jesus Christ. And you say, are t- you kidding me? That's the deal? That's what we call, where I'm from, northern Minnesota originally, uh, we call it a heck of a deal, right? You, tell, you take my sin and what? Wait. Yes. That is the gospel. That is the good news of Jesus Christ. And you can come running home. But to a lot of us, well, that was many years ago. And we've slipped a little bit into the older brother. And the same message is what what Jesus said in a parable all I have is yours. But you have to come and get it like the younger brother. You have to come and take it, saying, I don't deserve this either. And come down. So I want you to come down the aisle as one of the brothers. And maybe you're a little bit like me. I'm kind of both brothers at the same time. I'm a hot mess, right? And so, yeah, whatever. Just come down and take the elements. Now, go back to your seat then and, and hang on to them, and we'll, uh, we'll take them together. Let me pray. Father, your love for us is, is, is simply amazing. And it is truly awesome that you draw us to yourself in this way. The fact that the God of the universe is scanning the horizon to see us as we're just a dot in the distance, and then your heart is just filled with compassion to run out to us, boggles my mind, blows my mind that you love us that much, that you love me that much, sinner that I am. So, God, I pray for every single person in this room that they, they would not hold their sin in between, in between you and them, but they would say, Oh my goodness. I'm going to give it up, even if I don't do it perfectly. The younger brother certainly didn't, but he still came home. God, would today, uh, this third Sunday here in Advent, would this be a day where we, we just come home? We just come home, and as we, we move now to this time of response, would you work that in our hearts? And God, would we literally spiritually feel your arms thrown around us and kissing us as we do that? We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.